The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Revelation chapter 3. And in our study of the seven churches of Asia in chapters 2 and 3, we've, we've reached the last church that is on this divine postal route. And this is the letter to the church at Laodicea, which had the unfortunate distinction of being the most scathing letter to any of the churches. We've seen that Jesus is not always as meek and gentle as most people think. Oh, he certainly was compassionate in his earthly ministry. It's still true that his love has no limit, that his grace has no measure, his power has no boundary that's known unto men. It's still true that all the treasures of eternal life are found in him. But it's also true that the risen Christ, the one who is the Lord of his kingdom and of his church, will not tolerate sin. And it's also true that he will judge in righteousness with eyes that are as a flame of fire and that he will tread the winepress of his wrath. We, we saw that just a few minutes ago in our reading of Isaiah chapter 15. Now if you'll take just a moment here to look back in chapter 1 in Revelation, John saw the risen Christ and spoke with him and he recognized him, but he saw him in quite a different way than what he appeared in his earthly ministry. He saw Christ in glorious clothing and as the king of righteousness. And we see this in Revelation 1, verse number 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now this is the same Lord who wrote these seven letters to the churches and said, Take these, take these letters and deliver them to my churches because I want them to know that they must repent of their sins. So he never gave anyone a pass on sin. And though he does love sinners... His love never conflicts with His righteous justice. Now, it, it must be that Christ's love is founded in His justice, because if it weren't, then those that He gives eternal life would have an eternal existence with corruption, the corruption of sin. And heaven wouldn't be heaven if all that it was was just a warmed-over earth with all the same sins that we experience here. And so we see in this text there's a very strong rebuke for the sins of the Laodicean church. These are, these are timeless letters that represent churches in all ages. And this is the church of all the seven that looks most like the church in the world today. This is the modern church, it seems. This is the church 
that unfortunately allows sin in its midst. This is the church that doesn't demand righteous and holy living from its people. Now you remember that John the Baptist prepared people for the ministry of Christ when he came and and, uh, he reminded people of their sins. He told them of their sins. He said to them, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. You will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You must repent or perish. And I'm telling you that Jesus is coming again. And we must be prepared for His coming. And we must repeat the same message that John the Baptist preached. We must preach repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ or people will perish. And when Jesus preached, His preaching was the same. He did help people and He healed them. He was kind to all, but He made it very clear that what He came to do was to end sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil and restore man to fellowship with God through the death of the cross. So imagine after his painful death and after the beatings and the agony of that death, and then imagine him being separated from his father while he suffered for our sins, and then imagine that Christ should come back to find his people. They're careless and they're unconcerned. They are unholy and they're wallowing in the mud holes of sin and the filthiness of their flesh. What do you think Christ would say? And what would he do? Well, I can tell you, he's not going to die for sin again. He'll not suffer again. He'll not come again to miraculously cure diseases to establish authority over the devil. He's already done that. He's already made his authority known, so he won't do that again. This time, the Bible says he will come with judgment. He promised to judge all and to reward accordingly. Now, you need to know this, that there is still enough grace in Jesus Christ. There is plenty of grace to be saved by Him. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there is plenty of grace to be saved in Christ. But it's also true that if you reject Him, that all the scorn and punishment that's needed to satisfy the justice of God will be inflicted on you. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that Christ is not happy with a sinful church. He'll not stand for it. He'll not tolerate it. He'll say what needs to be said and he'll do what needs to be done. He'll issue a warning. He'll give adequate time for repentance. And if that's not done, he will act and there will be judgment. Now, in this last letter is found a church that is in apostasy. Now, maybe you don't understand that term, so I'll just explain it to you. It means to reject your beliefs. Apostasy is to reject what you have believed, to turn against what you have believed. And this is a church that turned its back on Christ. There was nothing good in it. Christ found nothing good in the church to commend. And he's so dissatisfied with this church that he wouldn't even enter it. In in the 20th verse... He's outside. If you want to look at that verse, there he is outside knocking on the door. And he's outside saying, hello, is there anybody in there? Can you hear me? He could see everything that was going on, but he wouldn't come in unless they would repent. And I know that there are many churches across our city, throughout our state, and across our country that have the name over the door that says that they are a Christian church. But they don't really know anything about Christ. They have a bare form of godliness, but it's an act to them. They don't know Christ. 
And this, in fact, is a letter to those churches. And I use that word church very loosely. I'm using that as a very generic term because many of the houses of worship that we see around us today never knew Christ. And so he's not calling on them. He's not knocking on their door because he's not in their neighborhood. Now this letter is to a church that was once a church but had gone too far off. And so here they are. They're just a shell of what they should be. And Christ is not on the inside. He was once there, but the pragmatism, the acceptance of the world, trying to be more like the culture, trying to perhaps build a crowd in the church, perhaps trying to be what everybody wants a church to be. They had gone away from Christ and they'd rejected the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and replaced it with their own plan of self-redemption. And what I've said to you this morning may sound like Thus far, a a very angry approach to this text. And it may sound like that what I want to do is hold the Berean Baptist Church above everybody else and say we're the ones that everybody should look to and let's thump our suspenders on our chest and say how good we are. Others should do what we do. But that's not what I'm trying to do this morning at all. I'm just trying to relate to you the indignation of the Lord in this text. And I'm doing what he requires, and that's to make a spiritual application of the letter for our time. It meant something in its context for those who originally read the letter. And because the the context of Scripture is timeless for us, it also means something to us. And this is what we're supposed to do when we preach the Word of God. We're to take and find out what is the meaning of the Bible for us today. And what good is the Bible if it doesn't mean anything to us today? This is our word of truth, just as it was theirs. And Jesus said His words will never pass away. They will not. And so the Bible still speaks to us today. So let's look at this letter. On your listening sheet this morning is the outline that was taught in the previous messages. And we'll look at that for just a moment. First of all was the desire of the Amen. In verse 14, Jesus began writing, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the Amen. Amen is a word of affirmation. It's a word that affirms truth. In the Old Testament, God said, I am the God of truth. The Hebrew word for that is Amen. Jesus is the self-affirmed truth because he said, I am the Amen. And God can swear by no greater because there is none greater. And so we have here one of the many times that Jesus affirmed that he is God. And it's common in these letters to self-identify, for him to self-identify as God. There is none greater that can attest that he is God, and so he affirms it himself. He's the faithful and true witness of himself. And then he goes on to give the reason he can say this. He said, he is the beginning of the creation of God. He was at the beginning. He is the beginning. There's nothing that exists without him. He wasn't created. He is the creator. He's the eternally existent God. In Bethlehem, we meet the incarnate God, but we don't meet the created God. Oh, the birth of Jesus was not his beginning. He is the almighty, eternal Son of God. It is the beginning of the humanity 
of Jesus Christ. And so this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, might well give us a clue as to what went wrong in Laodicea. The mention of Laodicea in the Colossian letter may indicate that they had gone off on the doctrine of the deity of Christ. They may have denied that Christ was fully God and eternally existed, and we gather that from the subject matter in the beginning of the Colossian letter. Uh, Paul addresses there the authority and the deity of Jesus Christ, and as I've told you, Colossae was very close to Laodicea. The problems in one church are the problems of another in that same area. And so if this is their problem, then we well understand why we would come to verse number 20 and find that Jesus is outside the church, that he's standing on the stoop of the church. That's the same as we find with the cults. The Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and others have no Christ in them. They're not Christian because they're wrong about this. They are wrong about the deity of Jesus Christ. Then next is the disaster they allowed. They allowed heretical teachings to take over the church. And where Christ is not, the heresy of the church abounds. It grows and it grows. And so in verse 15, we note that they were complacent in their Christianity. Complacent in their Christianity. I know thy works, Jesus said. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, per usual, in each letter, Jesus chose a cultural reference or a geographical reference or some point of familiarity to, to make a spiritual application of their problem. He used metaphors in all of these letters to reflect the spiritual condition of the churches. And I'm not going to address all the metaphors of the other churches again, but rather just the ones for this church. And understanding those metaphors is, is necessary to get the full impact of his warning. In these two verses, he refers to the water supply of the city. That's his geographical reference. The poor water in Laodicea kept them from being a city greater than it was. Their advantages were many. They had many good things about them as far as the world was concerned. But the water, the water of Laodicea kept them from being as attractive as they might be. So they were known for poor water. The river near to them was prone to dry up after the rainy season. So they had no, no um, internal source of water, water for the city. They had no reliable supply. And so they piped water through, uh, through it from a distant source, but that water was laden with minerals. And by the time that it reached them, it was disgusting and like drinking water from the trap underneath your sink. It was worthless. It wasn't hot water like the mineral water over in Hierapolis, a nearby city, the hot springs that were there. It wasn't cold water like the icy cold waters of Colossae that was nearby. But instead, the water arrived to them through this, through this aqueduct lukewarm, and it's tepid, and it's poor tasting, and it has minerals in it. And that condition of the water was an apt description of their Christianity, a very unenthusiastic Christianity, bland and distasteful. They weren't cold. Cold water can be useful. They aren't hot. Hot water can be useful. But lukewarm is good for nothing. And that's a very sad way to describe a church. Just good for nothing. They're no use to Christ. They're complacent 
with take-it-or-leave-it Christianity. It's Christless Christianity, meaningless. It has no effect on their lives. A few weeks ago, I described this as the kind of Christianity that's typical in the South today. I came from the South, and I know that there are many people that go to church. There are many, many churches. Now, unlike our area where most of the people are unchurched, in the South it's not so. There, there you have many, many churches and many, many people go to church. But full churches have only made a minor difference in the morality of that region. Oh, there was a time when faith ruled Christianity of the South and the politics of the area were somewhat of an indicator. Religion flowed out of that area and affected voting. A person who was a candidate needed to have a very good moral footing if he was going to be elected to an office. But when there was a very immoral man who was elected mayor of my city just a few years ago, I knew that the South is not the same South. Are the churches still filled? Oh, yes, they are. And so I wonder, who voted for that man? Because if you're going to get elected there, you've got to have the support of people that go to church. These are the people that are encouraged to vote. You have to have their support. And so I wonder, how did this man get elected? He got elected by the support of the evangelical community. That's the new morality. There's no protest against that man and the evil lifestyle that he lived. And so these mega churches in the South wouldn't take a stand. They're a huge voting block, but they're not cohesive enough in their stand for Christ to make a difference. So instead, this is what we hear. And this is what I heard when I went back home where I'm from. I was told this. Economically, we're doing fine. The mayor is doing a great job. Our city is prospering. Well, in other words, the same thing that we heard a few years ago. It's the economy, stupid. And so the people of God, as long as we can line our pocketbooks, anything goes. We don't care what our elected officials do. The economy is more important than morality. Would you look at verse number 17? Jesus' assessment of this. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. And so what have Christians done? We've traded truth for economic prosperity. Materialism, not Christ, rules the day. Then here's another problem in Laodicea. They didn't comprehend their true spiritual condition. They didn't comprehend their condition. Oh, they thought that they were doing great, and most churches do. We're doing great, but they were confused about what great means. They're confused about what's good for them. And here we need to go into the background of Laodicea to see how Jesus turns the economy into a metaphor for their true spiritual condition. And there were many ways they could have chosen to get the point of cross, but this one, they can't miss this bullet that's headed between their eyes. Jesus said, your complacency is sickening. I will spew you out of my mouth. Now you can listen to last week's message to get the graphical interface of that saying. Spew is the Greek word emeo. It means vomit. It's an emetic to his stomach. It makes him vomit. Well, the normally nice Jesus can be graphically off-putting when he needs to be. And let me say this too. There is a difference between being graphic and being vulgar. There are too many modern preachers 
that tend to be vulgar. They're subjects that are addressed from the pulpit in mixed audiences that shouldn't be talked about. There's language of the gutter today often used in the pulpit because the preacher wants to be edgy and he wants to be captivating, quite frankly, for an immoral congregation of quasi-Christians. And I know, I've heard that. I've heard the language used. I've heard it from Baptist preachers before. Pastors who use bedroom talk in sermons on marriage. I heard a purient, twisted message on the Song of Solomon that came out of a Baptist church in San Diego. There's something wrong with people like that. It's because the preacher lives in a culture that normalizes this kind of behavior, and he's happy to accommodate that because he likewise has a perverted mind. Jesus said he'll spew that out. He'll vomit it because it's Laodicean. Our Baptist churches are not immune to it. Jesus was purposely graphic. Now, he's not immorally graphic, but he certainly did want to catch their attention so they understand how disgusted that he is with their behavior. Don't look for a Jesus that will tickle your ears. Now, I'd like for us to consider verse number 17, which indicates they didn't know their true spiritual condition. Jesus will refer to it in, in, in three ways. You may remember from our first discussion of the geography of Laodicea that the city was at the center of a north-south-east-west trade-crossing route. The meeting place of these two trade routes was right in the heart of their city. If you look at a road map of the United States, you, you can look at places where major interstate highways intersect, and there are significant important cities that are found in those places. In California, north-south I-5 and east-west I-80 meet in Sacramento. In, uh, in California, I-5 and east-west I-10 intersect in L.A. Now, north-south I-5 and east-west 8 meet in San Diego. And then going across our country, north-south I-25 and east-west I-70 intersect at Denver. I-35 and I-70 intersect in Kansas City. I-55 and I-70 intersect in St. Louis. And I can show you all across the country that this is true. Where these major highways intersect, they correspond with major cities. And the crossing of them is, a, is an indication of significant commerce. And that's no different in the ancient world. And so though Laodicea had its problems, the economy there was great because the trade routes cut across their town. And because of that, it became a banking center. It was a place to deposit and pick up funds for merchants that are switching directions as they go through that area. Laodicea was a hub. They were an Amazon distribution center. And so if you were a Prime member, you got all the benefits that Laodicea could offer. Laodicea was a very wealthy place. When we studied Sardis... You may remember I told you about a great earthquake that leveled the city of Sardis. And the Roman government stopped tax collection in Sardis. They favored the city, so they stopped their tax collection for a time and loaned the money for Sardis to rebuild. Laodicea also had an earthquake that leveled their city. But they were too proud to accept welfare from, from Rome they didn't want Rome's help. They were proud and they were rich. And so when Rome sent FEMA, they sent them away. And they said, we don't need your help. Just go away. Don't interfere with us. 
And so they rebuilt their city bigger and better out of their own funds. So this first source of their wealth is banking and from being a commercial hub. Secondly, Laodicea was a garment center. Clothing from their area was very highly prized because of a black wool that came from the sheep they raised. It was soft and desirable. And so if you had something that was made in Laodicea, you were chic. You were fashionable. Probably you were rich. Now think of designer clothing. Think of Saks Fifth Avenue. Think of Melania Trump with dresses that cost more than my house. In those days, clothing was a sign of wealth. Today, of course, you can rip the knees out of your jeans and tear the pockets out of them and buy them too big to put on or too small to get into, and you're fashionable. doesn't look like it costs very much, but that's not the way it was in the ancient world. Think for just a moment about Achan in the Old Testament. You remember Achan, how he stole from the city of Jericho? And you remember what it was he stole? He stole some gold and some silver and what? A Babylonian garment. To them, garments were like gold. You remember Elisha's servant Gehazi? He chased after Naaman. And what did he take from Naaman? Two talents of silver and two changes of clothing. Why mention the clothing? Because it wasn't Walmart brand like I wear. The clothing was desirable like silver and gold. Then the third source of wealth in Laodicea was medicine. Anybody here that can witness that medicine is expensive? You need medicine for depression when you go buy your medicine. It's a vicious cycle. The, the, every time you take a pill, you want to cry. It's like swallowing money. My wife and I are, are blessed to have a, a medical plan that's supplied by the church. We have a high deductible plan, and that's in order to try and hold down cost. But with my wife's condition, we usually hit our deductible. And then once that deductible is paid, the insurance kicks in, pays the whole cost, and all of you know how that works. Well, in November of last year, we hit our deductible. So I said to my wife, you, you need to get out your list of medicine, and you need to order it all now. You need to get to the doctor now and every day if need be. You need to go get your lab tests and your ultrasounds and your MRIs. You need, if you need a heart transplant, go get that. Go get your eyebrows plucked. Get the whole thing. And get it all before the first of the year, before the deductible starts over. And so she did. And we picked up, I don't know, maybe four or $5,000 from Kaiser without having to pay anything more. I've heard of people taking pills that cost $100 a piece. And they're not even ecstasy. So it costs a lot of money for your, for your medicine. Now my point here is that health care is very expensive and there's somebody making a mint from all this money that goes to health care providers. Well, Laodicea had a Kaiser Permanente Hospital and Research Center. And by the way, Kaiser means Caesar. You do know that, don't you? Kaiser means Caesar. And so there's a Kaiser Hospital in Laodicea that specialized in an eye salve. And so if you had eye problems, Kaiser in Laodicea was the place where you went. They had medical status, and you know what medicine cost. So Laodicea was raking in money from all these sources, three sources, banking, a garment industry, and medicine. Oh, they might have had a very, very bad flow of water, but they had a good flow of money. And think about it. Is money an issue? Does money control the way that we think? 
All money can get in your head. And you can't think of anything else. Tabor and Jason aren't here today, the cryptocurrency salesman. But Jason ruined me spiritually when he said to me, you need to buy some Bitcoin and Ethereum. Some of you have no idea what that is. Don't worry about it. Don't touch it. So he, he pulled me into the, in the kitchen with his fancy app on his phone and he showed me right there and there in the kitchen how the numbers were clicking up. And you could watch it right before your eyes. His portfolio of Ethereum was making him rich and with stars in his eyes, he said, you need some of this too. And I watched and I said, well, I think I do. And so I took his advice and, and I went home and I shook out the piggy bank and I stole from Jolie's lunch money and I bought some crypto. Well, I got my fancy app on my phone and I started to watch a quarter turn into a dollar. And I started to think, well, what would happen if I buy more? How much money can I make if I buy some more? And so I investigated. I have eight grandkids. I don't need that many. What are they worth on the open market? And so I watched it. I watched my app. I watched it all going up. The numbers are going up. And so I told Jason and Tabor, I said, man, you guys have ruined me spiritually. I have become a Laodicean Christian. And that could happen to you. Money takes over. You can't think of anything else but money. You'll go anywhere and do anything for money. And God knows that. And so He warns us about it. Let me show you just a few Bible verses on money. Everybody knows this one in 1 Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's a verse tailor-made for Laodicea, no pun intended. It's the love of money. It takes you into all kinds of evil. Money will lead you away from the faith. It will bring sorrow into your life. There are very, very bad decisions that are made because of money. I believe it was the actor Jim Carrey, who at the height of his popularity said that he thought that money was the answer. And he said it isn't. He said, don't chase after money. It won't make you happy. And I think the Lord already said that, didn't he? And when Christians chase money, then they might just get spit out of the Lord's mouth for loving it more than they do him. Now, we're going to talk more about that angle when it comes to a discussion of prosperity preaching in our coming weeks. Then Jesus said in Matthew 6:24, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is money. And that's another verse with Laodicea printed on it. Was their master God or was it money? Well, we know the answer to that. Which God did they want to serve? We'll get into that. That was the suicide of the church. Money was on the inside, and so Christ was on the outside. Now, I'd like to say something more about this. Last year, in our church, the offerings were amazing. God's people proved we're not a Laodicean church, excepting Jason, Tabor, and me. Money, much money was given to do the Lord's work. It, was, it wasn't kept to increase our lifestyles. Randy Alcorn, who writes a lot on Christians and money, said that God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. In defense of Jason, he did tell me, he says, if I make more money, I give more tithes. 
And I said, that's a good thing. You and your money are very useful, so we'll keep you around a little bit longer. Now, we're going to get into all that again when we talk about the radical corruption of the true gospel by the Word of Faith gospel, Word of Faith prosperity movement. But think about it. What is charitable, generous giving? I think that it starts with God's gift of Himself, doesn't it? It starts with the gift of Jesus Christ, a gift that cost us nothing, cost Him everything, but cost us nothing. And we've learned a few things here at Berean. We've learned that giving away is better than giving it all ourselves. And we've learned that the heart is bigger when we think of others than when we think of self. Now, I'll give you an example of this. I've learned that when we take an offering for something that we need concerning the building, that we don't get as much money as when we ask for money to help others. Um, Our building can't compete with missionaries and fire victims. We can raise money for that. We're, we're blessed to have sent thousands of dollars to Africa and to the Philippines and to other places, and we gave one of our largest offerings to fire victims. But when we took an offering to remodel our platform, we didn't get enough. Uh, we got the pulpit. That was a start. But it's harder to get money to replace frayed carpet than it is to give compassionately to others. And I guess that we shouldn't complain about that. There's no Laodicea here, but it's still true. We're going to need help replacing some stuff. Whether we like it or not, the aesthetics of worship are important, and I do believe that. You can look at the tabernacle and how people brought so much that Moses was the only Baptist preacher who said, that's too much, we have enough, don't bring any more. People wanted a beautiful place to worship God. But giving God's not just a monetary issue. It's also a personal work issue. And that is people give up time in order to serve God. You know, I'm always talking about those uh, filthy pigeons that are at my house, and they've taken up a lot of the Lord's time. Did you know that? They have. Church members come and help me with that. Jorge and Kyle and Richard, they, they come over. Uh, church members put down mulch in front of my house. There was one of the church members that bought the mulch and put it down in front of my house. But those pigeons, you know, the Lord could save a lot of time if He just electrocute those things and get rid of them. And then others would get some church members' time besides me. What does all that tell us? Well, it tells us that the Lord's not out, He's not standing outside of our church. He's inside. He's inside, moving in the hearts of Bereans and blessing others with generosity. And that's incredible what the Lord does. When He's on the inside, the blessings just keep flowing. You can't stop the blessings when the Lord is on the inside. Then here's another verse in Proverbs 11, verse 4. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. That's another good verse for Laodicea. What good will riches do when the Lord comes to visit the church? Material things stay behind when He calls people out of the grave. And so your attention to righteousness will save you in the day of wrath. Now let me say another word here. You know, it's very difficult to live in Sonoma County. We know this. I'm getting older. Someday I won't be able to preach. I hope I die before then because I don't want to listen to anybody else. But... I know that time's going to come, and uh, I'll be too old, and that's part of what drives my interest in Jason's crypto. But I have learned there, there's no profit in thinking like this. Jim Andrews said something 
to me the other day, and I'm not going to explain it all to you, but with tears in his eyes, he talked to me, and he said, I, I started to panic before I trusted God. And he said, I know that sin. God will take care of me. And I listened in, in amazement at his faith that he was very deeply troubled about this. See, sometimes church members teach me more than I can teach you. The Lord is gracious. Every day He supplies our needs. And so Jim said to me, I don't know how He'll do it, and I don't know what it will look like, but I know that He'll take care of me. Now you ask Jim to tell you about that moving story, and maybe he will. But that's how things that you say to me get into sermons. They're wise and valuable things that the Lord puts in my way to encourage you. So if you don't want to be in the sermon, don't talk to me. But this happens to us. We get sidetracked with the future. The Lord said, don't worry about stuff. You can't do anything about it anyway. All you're worrying about tomorrow, it just brings tomorrow's problems into today. It's not going to do any good. Just trust God. How did you get where you are now? Has God failed you? I don't think anybody here could say God's failed me or you wouldn't be here. You're here because God is faithful. Did anybody here miss a meal yesterday that you didn't intend to miss? I don't think so. And so if you're busting yourself all the time to get ahead and you do that by neglecting God's work, there aren't enough ways for me to tell you that's wrong. If you stop working in the church because you've got to make a dollar, then give up the dollar. Or as some say, oh, I've got to work all the time, and then I've got to sleep. Well, you have two choices then. You, 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 you work less or you sleep less. I haven't found anything in the Scripture that says we neglect God. If you trust Him, He provides time and money. Now, I, I need to wrap us up here, but let me make one more brief point. I want us to go back to 1 Timothy 6 once again. This time I want you to turn to it. Paul said, the love of money is the root of all evil. But what else did he say in that passage? Well, we need to read some more because there's valuable info for lovers of money. And you'll get the picture here without too much commentary. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse number 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us... Be there with content. But they that will be rich fall in temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, while, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight, the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto also thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Forget riches. God will give you what you need. Put all of your efforts into fighting the good fight of faith. That's what you're here for. That's why you're a Christian, to fight the good fight of faith. Eternal life and its riches are all the reward that you need. So you put your efforts into that and it lasts forever. Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust doesn't corrupt. And there he was talking about clothes and money. Folks, that's clothes and coins. He that hath an ear, the Lord said, 
Let him hear what the Spirit said unto the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, for the truth that we find in it. Lord, as you've told us to do, we want to make an application of the word for us today. And here we have found in Laodicea a lesson for us about how we are to trust you, put our faith in you, and understand that you are most important and what we do for you last, it stands. We'll never gain anything truly that we can hold on to or keep by working in the world, doing things in the world, trying to hold on to what the world has to offer. All of our treasures are hid, hidden in Jesus Christ, and that's where we are to look and to focus our efforts. And then, as your word says, all these other things will be added unto us. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you every single day as your church, to keep you on the inside where the blessings are. And we know, Lord, you're faithful to provide them. Speak to your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.